appreciate it. Let's come before our God in prayer. And to you, O Lord, do we lift up our voices. You are the God of peace, and we are a people in turmoil. O Father, send out your peace that it might flow through your church to the nations. Pour out your spirit like water and let the rivers flow. May we find that living water today. And may we be known as a people of peace. So teach us to speak words that build up and encourage and bring health to the soul. We pray that you would give us peace in body and soul. Give us peace in our communities. We have become so angry and rude and violent and restless and critical. Help us, Father, to sit calmly under our own vine and under our own fig tree. Fill us with your spirit that we might truly walk in love and joy and peace that only you can provide. Calm our restless hearts. Heal our wounds with the balm that only you can provide. We pray that you would give the authorities in Sacramento wisdom and insight into this mass shooting and that justice would be done. Give comfort to the families of the victims. Give healing to the injured. And Lord, we beg of you that you would restrain violence. For if you do not restrain violence, there is nothing we can do. There will be no police force big enough, no law strong enough, no guns strong enough, no strength powerful enough if you do not restrain violence from the heart. For the sake of your bride on earth, Lord, restrain the violence of wicked men. May we know what it is to walk on the streets at night safely. May we know what it is to discuss ideas safely, to disagree safely. You are the God of peace, but we are so restless and angry. Forgive us, Lord. Heal the nations by the gospel of peace. Deliver us from false prophets. Deliver us from the lusts of the flesh and the pride of life. Deliver us from ruthless and violent men. Give peace to our community. Give food to the hungry and shelter to those with none. Deliver the captive. Deliver those in bondage to sin. Bring the wandering ones back home. Thank you for healing and for health care. Thank you for hearing our prayers for Gary and Roger and Naomi and Bud. Continue to heal our bodies, we pray. Heal Susan from her infection. Give healing to Victor and wisdom to his doctors. For those who are still waiting for tests and for test results, we pray that you would open the door and speed the care that is needed. When we see so much death and senseless destruction, Lord, we get scared. We know that the devil uses that fear to drive even more death and destruction. And so teach us to respond how Jesus responded. Teach us to boast in weakness rather than strength. Teach us to wait on you for perfect justice. Teach us to turn the other cheek. Teach us to use the strength and power that you give us to do good, to speak justly, to love kindness, but all the while walking humbly with you, relying on your strength alone. And when we are weak and can do nothing, hear our cries. Sit us gently on your lap and hold us in your arms and remind us that you are coming in strength, in justice, and that every wrong will be made right and every tear will be dried. Until that day, may we hold firmly to you even when we don't understand. Bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning. Guide my lips, give us ears to hear, and let us pray together. And let the words of my mouth 
and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen. My scripture reading this morning is in Zechariah chapter 14. When you preach through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, and are committed to finishing it, eventually you will come to a chapter like 14, which will test all of your abilities uh, to make sense of it. I will do the best I can with this difficult, difficult chapter. Uh, Zechariah, as you know, was written to a church that was struggling was weak. They had been recalled from exile and they were trying to rebuild back in Jerusalem. They were discouraged. They were downhearted. Uh, And Zechariah was written to encourage them and to build them up and to strengthen them. That in mind, let's come to chapter 14 of Zechariah. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the city shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through the mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord... new technology the Lord is one and his name is one all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon south of Jerusalem Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress the people shall dwell in it And no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. Their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, and apparel in great abundance. 
Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, on the camel and the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in those camps. So shall, so shall this plague be. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there shall be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the feast of the tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in the Lord's house uh, in Jerusalem and Judah shall be like holiness, shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. As I said, I approach this passage with a great deal of fear and trembling. As I have plowed through it line by line, um, I did find it quite encouraging as well as puzzling in places. As I was studying, I came across this quote by Martin Luther. He said, Here in this chapter I give up, for I'm not sure what the prophet is talking about. I found that strangely encouraging. The commentaries, almost without exception, put all of this chapter in a final battle in the last day. That causes some difficulties in my mind. The first one is, is the very first verse. The day of the Lord, the spoil divided in the midst of Jerusalem and all the description of what will happen to the city of Jerusalem was fulfilled, literally, uh, within a couple hundred years of the writing of this. In the days of Antiochus Epiphanes, all the nations came against Jerusalem uh, and fought against her. And all of these things took place. And it was fulfilled over and over again in the days of Titus when Jerusalem was destroyed. We also know that in the New Testament, Jerusalem is spiritual, referring to the church. And all the prophecies of Jerusalem are fulfilled in the church. And we see these prophecies, especially the cities taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. We've seen it fulfilled in the church, even in our own day throughout the world. This is fulfilled literally as the church is suffering tremendous persecution and wickedness. So rather than turning this into an end times prophecy, which will inevitably end up with me speculating on what some of these verses mean, I would like to ask the question, why is this here? What does it speak to us today? And the first question that I would like to address in this sermon is this one. Why does God allow the nations to rage and win against the church? Which brings to mind the next question. Why does God allow horrible things to happen to his people who love him? The description in verse 1 and 2 is a description of tremendous weakness. It's a weakness that is so complete. 
he talks about the enemies taking the spoil. Uh, in other words, they, wrote, they break into everybody's houses, they take all the stuff out of the houses, and then they sit down in the middle of the street and divide up the spoil in the presence of everyone they've just conquered. This is how sure they are of their strength and how sure they are of the weakness of the people of God. With this description, the description of an invading army, there's no resistance, no help. The enemy does as he pleases, takes what he wants, and there is no one to say, no, stop. There's nothing in our text that says this is because of judgment on the church. It's simply a description of what will happen. Jesus himself said, in this earth you will have tribulation. Jesus said it is impossible that offenses do not come. This is what God has designed for his people. In our day, the church far too often praises strength, arms and weapons and manliness. and In fact, even a, a, a text in the scripture like the one where Deborah is called to judge Israel, we will often say, you see, that was only uh, the case because the men were too weak to do anything. But nothing in the text about Deborah says that the men could have done anything had they chosen to. The affliction of Israel in the days of Deborah came from God. And only God could lift it. Repeatedly you hear sermons and you read articles about God calling strong men to be strong and stand up and take up arms. Unfortunately, it's common to see members of church stockpiling weapons for this great battle that's going to come. There's no hint of that in our text. God isn't doing this to Jerusalem because he's chastening them. He calls them his people. He talks about delivering them from his enemies. When you think about brutal armies dividing the spoil, you can't help but think of Jesus hanging on the cross, the epitome of weakness, while the Roman soldiers at the bottom of the foot of the cross are throwing dice to see who's going to take home his clothes. Can you imagine the hopelessness and shame and helplessness? And can you imagine the cruelty of the Roman army to play games while your victim is in indescribable agony? Scripture throughout, from beginning to end, teaches that the salvation of the world, of society, of the family, of everything, isn't in strength. It's in weakness. It's not the one that sits at the table. It's the one who washes the feet of the one who sits at the table. Jesus himself, our Savior, took the lowest place of all. And it says in Philippians, Therefore God hath given him a name which is above every name. And we're called to follow his example. Jesus was victorious because he was weak. His weakness was his strength. He laid aside his power, his glory. He restrained himself and voluntarily offered up his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Did he have the power to put a stop to it? Of course he did. In a moment, he could have spoken. He said, I could speak to my father and have 10,000 legions of angels. He could have come down from the cross at any moment. 
But that was not what would have conquered death. In our text, is Zechariah speaking of a final battle? Maybe. It just isn't clear. It is true that scripture does hint that there may be a universal final battle, an all-out war against the church in the last days before Jesus comes again. It may happen. It's happened in every age. It's happened before. It could happen again. But whatever it is, verse 1, 2, and 3 describe the church in every age. Whenever the gospel is preached, men and women are united to Christ. We become flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And the scripture teaches that that means we will always suffer as Christ suffered. Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians, Therefore I delight in weaknesses and insults and distresses and persecutions in difficulties in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the question is, why does God allow such horrible sufferings? Many would say because God isn't sovereign, God won't interfere with free will because God himself can't do anything about it, and they think that's the answer. But in our text it says, I will gather all the nations. You can't get away with it that way. God is completely sovereign. He's the one that gathered the nations to war against Jerusalem. He is not the author of sin, but he does indeed gather the nations. The nuance of all of that is beyond the point of this sermon. The enemies of God war against the church of God, and God permits it. In fact, God gathers them. That's really, really hard for us as human beings to process. But it won't do to say that God is out of control of history. It won't do to say that he's powerless to stop suffering. His power is infinite and almighty and he does all of his good pleasure. Those are hard things for us to understand. And unfortunately, many Christians go the way of Job's wife and say, curse God and die when sufferings come upon them. This passage before us is given to us so that we will have a better answer than that. To trust him, even to delight in weaknesses. But even though Job and all of those who suffer couldn't give the reasons, Job knew that his business was with God. And so with Job, the church cries out to God. Our text doesn't give the reasons why God is gathering the nations together against the church. But what we do know is this. God is good. God loves his people. And God is exercising righteousness and justice and loving kindness in the earth. And we cannot fathom what that involves. It's so hard for us to wrap our minds around it. There's many examples in scripture where God gathered nations against the church. He talks about, even in our text, he talks about the Lord fight the, will fight the battle just like he's always fought the battles. We'll get to that in another sermon. But one of the battles that God fought was in the days of Joshua. The nation defeated Jericho. You know the song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. And then from there he went on to Ai and he defeated Ai. 
I don't have a song about AI. And then it says that God brought five nations against them. All the nations surrounding Joshua and the nation of Israel said, we've got to do something about this now. We're not going to let him go from town to town and pick all of us off. Let's all gather together all of our strength, everything we've got, and throw it all at him at once and get rid of this threat. Led by Adonai Bezek of Jerusalem. And so they did. A million men gathered together against this nation. It would have been terrifying. As it turns out, when we read the history, and what we know later, is that the reason God brought all of those nations together against Israel was not to defeat Israel. It was so that they could defeat all of the nations at once without traveling from place to place and continuing that process. He brought them all together so that the victory would be complete and decisive. And it was. And just like in our text, there was cosmic shifts. Even the sun stood still while Joshua and the armies of Israel utterly defeated the Canaanites brought against them. So God can deliver instantly. But God hasn't promised that he will always deliver instantly. In fact, more often than not, the Shadrach, Meshachs, and Abednegoes of the world are killed in the furnaces. The church is destroyed or shoved down to the absolute remnant. There's many times in history and even in our own lives that we have enemies that we are powerless against, just like the church is described in verse 2. Sometimes those enemies are the powerful ones in the church. Sometimes those enemies are death. Sometimes illness. Sometimes foreign armies. Sometimes your own nation's politicians. Sometimes your own country's armies. Jesus said in Matthew 18, Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come. But the next thing that Jesus said right after that is, but woe to him by whom the offenses come, which is the next point. There will be times of peace and blessings of joy and oases and times of grief, but there will always be ravaging armies. There will always be trials and tribulations. There will always be enemies. But, as Jesus says, woe to the enemies. Even though we don't know why God is bringing such difficulties on his church, why he brings such trial and trouble upon people, we know this. Jesus considers the offenses against his people as offenses against himself. He said to Paul, why are you persecuting me when Paul was persecuting the church? As I've said repeatedly, it means something to be the people of God. Let me ask you husbands something. What would be your reaction if someone willingly and maliciously hurt your wife? Jesus loves his bride far more than you even love your wife. Flesh of your flesh, bone of your bone, he says. He says this of his bride 
Song of Solomon, chapter 2. My dove, you are the, uh, my dove in the clefts of the rock, in the hiding place of the mountain pathway. Let me see how you look. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is pleasant and you look delightful. This is Christ himself speaking to his church. Our voice is pleasant. He takes delight in us. What will the groom do to someone who harms his bride? That's what we read in verse 4. Verse 3 and 4, the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations. He will bring cataclysmic destruction on the one who harms his bride. Verses 4 and 5, a lot of imagery, a lot of apocalyptic energy. Uh, this is the idea there's a lot of allusions to Israel's history a lot of illustrations a lot of pictures involved don't get too caught up with the pictures look at the whole thing that the prophet here is saying verse 4 his, I'm in Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east and then it talks about the Mount of Olives splitting in half and forming a huge valley and all the people fleeing through that valley what's he talking about well there was once a time when Israel was backed up to the Red Sea the armies of Pharaoh were ready to absolutely wipe them out victory was all theirs and then God opened up the Red Sea And he formed a pathway through the sea for the nation to go through. And they fled through that pathway. This is the imagery that the prophet is capitalizing on. He's also adding the idea that Isaiah has in chapter 40. He says, every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked place is plain. In Isaiah's day, he was promising Israel a second exodus. An exodus from Babylon. There was no Red Sea between Babylon and Israel, but there were mountain ranges. The idea was not necessarily that God would destroy mountain ranges, although he's certainly capable of doing that. The idea is that God will make the escape possible. He will smooth away all the rough places. He will ease all the obstacles. He will provide a way to safety. While he comes in judgment. Using all of this language, the Mount of Olives is an elevated high ridge outside of Jerusalem, three peaks. It was the place where David escaped from Absalom going over that hill. It exhausted him. If you read the account, Absalom's counselors, he had two counselors. One said, Go after him now while he's exhausted. He's just gone over that mountain ridge. Go get him right now. But the Lord defeated that counsel. And the other guy who was a friend of David's, unknown to Absalom, said, no, no, let's wait. He's a man of war. He's expecting you to come now. Let's wait and get him when he's not expecting you. And God defeated the first counselor and lifted up the bad counsel of the second guy. And David escaped. So think of this in their history. When enemies are coming into Jerusalem, you've got to get over the Mount of Olives. How are you going to take your wife and your little ones and your flocks and your herds and all of that and get over the mountain? God is saying, don't worry about obstacles. When God comes in judgment, he will provide safety for his sheep and not one will be lost. 
And instead of saying that, he uses all this imagery and all of these pictures and all of this. He will move the mountains. He will move the heavens and the earth. He will open the Red Sea. He will do what it takes to avenge his bride. That's the point. He describes in verse 5, God is the warrior king. In our translation, it says saints. He shall come with his saints. The Hebrew word is holy ones. I believe it's referring to the angels. As Jesus said, when he comes again with his angels in great glory, the tribes of the earth will mourn. God has all the angelic hosts under his command and he's fighting the enemies of the church. Why doesn't he just destroy them all? Because it's not time yet. Jesus said when you get overly eager to pull up all the weeds, you invariably get wheat as well. But God is not impatient. He calls us to not be impatient. Peter says that he is delaying this coming again so that all would repent. Don't despise the goodness of God. He is coming in judgment. Our acts of justice are always wrong somehow. We always go too far, or we don't go far enough, or we respond in rage, or we lose control. We lose our tempers. We lack wisdom. But God's wisdom is perfect. God never loses his temper. And so God says, wait for him. But when the church is under siege, when the people of God are under siege, remember this. He will come in judgment. We see glimpses of this on this earth. Herod died a rather gruesome death, we read in the book of Acts. But it will all be done perfectly and well with wisdom on the last day. But today is not that day. Today we still suffer. We still watch the enemies of the church prosper and the people of God suffering. And we cry out, how long? We read the reports out of Ukraine and it causes our hearts to melt within us. And we go, how long, Lord? And God still says, just wait. Today is not that day. Watch and pray, Jesus said. The groom is coming to get his bride and all who have hurt the bride of Christ will be utterly destroyed with perfect wisdom. We don't know all the reasons for specific suffering. I can't tell you why God has allowed the church all over the world to go through so much pain. But I can tell you what he has promised. That his name will be exalted. The name of his people will be exalted with him. His people will be vindicated and revealed before the whole world as to who they really are, the sons of God. And he has promised that he will miserably destroy all who have fought against his bride. So with Paul, for this reason, we can rejoice in suffering, for in our suffering we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Now this doesn't mean that we seek it out, We still weep with those who weep. 
the worst counsel to give to someone who is going through tremendous suffering is saying, well, God has a plan for everything. No, weep with them. Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. It also does not mean that you endure horrible treatment at the hand of a spouse or another loved one when a way of escape has provided you. God told this, or Paul told the slaves of the Roman Empire, if you can become free, do that. It's better. And it doesn't mean to stop fighting for justice. We are to hate injustice as God does. We're to fight with it with whatever strength we have. There are times when God gives us strength. Queen Esther was given access to the king and God gave her the strength of influence. She used that voice to save her people. And through saving her people, she saved the world for Jesus Christ was in their loins. One of David's mighty men, Eliezer, killed Philistines until his hands stuck to his sword. That's a specific kind of strength. David had the strength of a political ruler. Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed. In the times when the Lord gives us that strength, whatever it is, when the Lord gives us power, use that strength to give voice to the voiceless, to hold up the arms of the failing, to encourage the downhearted, to give water to the thirsty, to visit the dying, to speak out for justice, to do good and become a place of rest and peace for all who know you. But no matter what strength God gives you, there will always be trials that you cannot overcome. There will be enemies too strong for you, There will be illnesses that you can't fix. There will be deaths that you can't prevent. There will be tragedies that you can't stop. There will be attacks that you can't defeat. Slanders that you can't undo. This chapter speaks to that. The city is under siege. The people are powerless under the strength of the lusts of the wicked. The fact is, in this world, we will have tribulation. We will have battles we can't win because we don't have the strength to overcome them. So we weep, we cry out to the Lord, we pour out our troubles to him. We join our voices with Job and cry out, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And with the disciples, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Are his words faithful and true? He's the one that told us that we would have tribulations in this world. But then he says, but don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. And with that voice we remember. He hears and cares. He carries our tears with him and not one falls to the ground in vain. He took those tears on himself and he also wept tears at the tomb of Lazarus even though he knew what he was about to do. We know there's a resurrection. We know that God comes as judge. We know that God is sovereign over all things. Pain still hurts. And there are tears. God has promised that he'll wipe those tears away, but today is not that day. But remember this also. He will miserably destroy the enemy that caused those tears. When he does, he won't lose his temper. He won't cause further injustice. He won't cause more problems. For his wrath and justice is also perfect 
wise, everlasting, pure, and righteous. So we can wait for his day. As you've probably seen, I haven't got to everything in this chapter. There are some wonderful promises to hold on to as well. Living water flowing from Jerusalem. Jerusalem raised above the whole earth and exalted. All the nations who are left will come to the feast of the Lord and worship the one true God in the unity of true faith. And here's the most precious promise of all. The bells on the horses will say holiness to the Lord. But that's going to have to wait for another sermon. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the judge of all, that you are sovereignly in control of all things and working all things according to the counsel of your good pleasure. And so, Father, teach us to trust, even in our tears and in our pain and in our sorrow, teach us to wait patiently for you, trusting in you alone. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.